My name is Sid Drew, and I'm the pastor of community groups here at Hope. I guess uh, I'm newish, started in August, uh, but I've been with you before, and it's uh, a wonderful opportunity not just to care for the community groups and the community group leaders and the coaches, but also get to open the Word of God uh, together, and we get to study it together, uh, and I get to do that this morning. And let me give you some context for the passage that Gordon just read. Uh, we have been uh, looking for the last several weeks and will continue to look at in the new year at uh, a topical series that Hope is doing based on Kelly Capick's book, You're Only Human. Each week we're looking to the Bible and then we're kind of pulling themes from the chapter that kind of help us to understand more about this topic of what it means to be human and what it means to let God be God. And this week's chapter is titled, Have We Misunderstood Humility? And it feels especially like it speaks to this time of year when we gather to celebrate Christmas, which is really a celebration of God humbling himself to become a man named Jesus. And also, at the same time, we attempt to play God. <laughs> we have a long list with superhuman feats to accomplish in a very short December time frame. The, the perfect gift for everyone, a tour of parties to attend or host or plan, managing and mourning family and finances at the year's end, all with a holly jolly smile and the spirit of Christmas. But what if there was a way for all of this holiday pressure to lift, or at least to lessen? And what if it involved, of all things, humility? What if humility was, as Kelly Capick suggests, humility consists in a recognition of and rejoicing in the good limitations that God has given us? How might this free us up and even console us this time of year? Well, before we look at Paul's letter uh, to the Philippians chapter 2 and the humility on display there, would you pray with me and for our time together in God's words to us? Father, uh, as Gordon spoke and, and prayed, there is a lot going on in our church family. Um, there are people that are really, really hurting. Um, April, uh, excuse me, December, uh, as opposed to April, can be the cruelest month. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it also is a, is a joyful month. And that mixture is hard to hold. And I do just pray that you, uh, by not just your example, but by your power, um, would break through to us this morning. Uh, would you pierce our busyness? Would you pierce our numbness? Uh, would you uh, join us in mourning or gladness or both? And would you meet us in your word once again? We come like children, open hands and open hearts, I pray. Uh, and would we be able to hold on to you holding on to us? Jesus, would you be high and lifted up? More believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts, we pray. Amen. I was in my mid-20s, and I was in a, sh a shed-turned-high-school weight room. Uh, and the mostly metal walls of this shed weight room were shaking. They weren't just shaking up and they weren't just shaking up and down. They were shaking side to side to sort of the sonic booms of Led Zeppelin power chords that exploded from a tower of stereo speakers in the corner. 
And there I was, it was between the wails and the booms of immigrant song, I heard a hoarse yell from across the shed. Get your rear down. What? Get your rear end down. And I felt him there before I saw him. He was Marty Klingelhofer, a huge man, rippling with muscles, balancing this small head with a 1950s buzz cut and ears that jutted out slightly. And then he kind of was grounded, this muscle, this mountain of muscle was grounded, it hit the ground in white, pulled taut and high tube socks with flattened black sneakers. And I was a second year assistant high school soccer coach who was there lifting weights with the varsity soccer team. Why, you might ask? <laughs> because my head coach, who was much older, was huffing and puffing and grunting it out, and that was enough said. <laughs> when Bill Reed did something, you followed. <laughs> and when uh, I heard Marty, I was mid clean and jerk lift. <laughs> Uh, the barbell was loaded with way too much weight for me. I had a lot of things to prove, still do, uh, but it's certainly in my 20s. And the solid metal plates were seesawing atop my trembling for air chest. <laughs> and so Marty, in that moment, chose to explain what he had yelled across the shed. It was not enough just to bend my knees. I also had to drop my rear end low to lift all of the weight high into the air. Otherwise, I'd give out or hurt myself or both. I'm reminded of that scene in Marty's advice when I read uh, our scripture passage about humility. Our humility in everyday life and Jesus's at that first Christmas 2,000 years ago. Let's start with Jesus's humility. I love the way that C.S. Lewis describes that ultimate moment of Jesus's humility, what theologians call the incarnation and then the crucifixion. Here's how he puts it. But he, Jesus, goes down to come up again and bring the ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must also almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swinging on his shoulders. And like Jesus, we too must bend low to do the heavy lifting of love. To lift someone else up in honor, we have to stoop and scoop them from underneath. And yes, humility can sometimes feel like we almost disappear. And yes, it can often look like getting our spiritual ends down low. But let me add this. Studying this passage all this past week, I was reminded of how I often struggle to bend low. Uh, Marty Klingelhofer was right. Um, I am now in my 40s, and I have lower back pain and tight hamstrings. <laughs> I still continue to struggle to get my rear end low. <laughs> and Paul the Apostle is right. I struggle to count others more significant than myself. But in order to get stronger at loving other people and loving God, I need more humility and really the question of this passage is, what is humility and how do we get better at humility? And our passage this morning, Philippians chapter 2, addresses these questions by showing us what happens in our lives when we bend low to love and by describing what happened to the world 
when Jesus bent low to lift us up in love. And so we can approach this topic of humility in Philippians 2 in three parts. As usual, the outline and the points and the verses are in your bullets and are also projected behind me. First, verses 1 through 5, we're going to look at the technique for bending low. Second, verses 6 through 8, we're going to look at the strength behind bending low. And then third, verses 9 through 11, we're going to picture, this is going to be a picture for us of the hope ahead for bending low. So let's begin with what Paul begins with and humility's technique and the breaking down of that. Paul doesn't begin his lesson on humility the way that we think. This is not like how every YouTube do-it-yourself instructional video starts, is it? Like, think about how he begins the technique here. Verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being, and I'm going to paraphrase here, united in love. And you can, instead of a certain tone, these verses can feel like one big guilt trip from Paul, right? You could think of him saying this, if there's anything spiritual going on in there, hello, then you would actually complete my joy, people. But that's not what he's saying. <laughs> I think we can, we can go there in our minds and hearts, and that's, we can assume the worst, but let's assume that Paul is actually doing something different here. What if instead of assuming the worst, um, that Paul is doubting that anyone is Christian in the audience? It makes more sense that Paul is grounding the possibility of humility in a Christian identity. Paul's grounding the possibility of humility in a Christian identity. Or let's put it another way. Paul's saying this, since you're in Jesus by faith and you have been given the Holy Spirit to work within you, you can get lower than you think. And that's exciting for me, Paul, as your spiritual coach. That's kind of what he's saying. But what exactly is Paul suggesting? What does it look like to bend low? And I think verse 3 is this great summary. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And all God's people said, woof, that's a gut punch, isn't it? <laughs> Who does that? After all, don't we instinctively fight for our own rights? I mean, don't we insist on not just being served, but being served first? I do. And while that, is, while that is true, I want us to realize that humility is bigger than we think. Humility is not just a recognition of our sinfulness. Humility does not just say, I'm sorry, or please forgive me. Humility also recognizes our natural limits. We are not God. Knowing it all, able to fix it all, everywhere for all. Therefore, humility also is able to say, I can't do everything, and that's okay. And so humility often looks like asking for help. Even about the way that we see ourselves and we see our own gifts. You see, there is such a thing as thinking too much of yourself, but there's also equally a thing of thinking too little of yourself. 
and too little of God's gifts at work in you. So humility doesn't have to look like this game that we all play when we get a compliment, right? Uh, have, you, have you played this game? You know the expectation. Someone says, you were great out there. You were great doing this. And we're supposed to say what? No, not really. Or, no, you were the great one for recognizing my greatness. Or, that's kind of you to say. All instead of just saying, thanks. Thanks for saying that. But humility also intimately relates to how we see not just ourselves and our gifts, but other people and their gifts. What if the next time you and I were at a party, or really any gathering, even church, what if we believed the most interesting person in the room was the person right in front of us? Not across the room, right in front of us. Or next time you see a line form to get something or to get somewhere, think of what the Indian pastor P.T. Shantapila once said. Always go to the back of the line. There will be, always be one person there. His name is Jesus. Really, these are just simple social ways to bend low, to do the heavy lifting of love. And they are, just, they are actually just trust exercises. They help us to believe the truth about how reality works, that God's gifts are often found on the lowest shelves. Or to quote Jack Miller, grace flows downhill. But how do we do all that? How do we do this? If you and I have any sense of self-awareness, we quickly wonder if God is asking the impossible here. You're asking me, God, the, the guy with the bad spiritual back and the tight hamstrings, you're asking me and us together, we who are so weak and wounded, sick and sore, to bend low and to lift up that kind of weight and that many times, you've got to be kidding me. And so Paul, sensing our need, gives us verses 6 through 8. If verses 1 through 4 give us some pointers on humility's technique, sermon point 1, verses 6 through 8 give us the strength that we need to bend that low to lift that kind of weight, verses 6 through 8, our second point this morning. Once again, I just want us to, if you're paying attention at all, the Bible is surprising here. It does something that we don't expect. Paul has laid out the need for humility, and we hold our breath, expecting the lecture, don't we? At least I do. You know what I mean here. Here it comes, the speech. We've all heard it. We've all given it. As children and parents, managers and friends, if I recorded my thoughts and you kind of listened to them like a podcast, you'd hear the speech that I give to myself on the hour every hour all the time. But it's important to know that this speech can sound critical as well as positive. Here's the critical version that you or may, may or may not have heard, uh, but you certainly have given, and you probably also heard relatively recently, is my guess. The church, your family, your marriage, your job is slipping, Sid, and you need to do your part, and then some. Get after it, get better, do more. And the speech can also sound really positive, right? There can be a flip side. You know, Sid, you have so much to offer. 
You have a backpack full of snacks, and we're starving out here. Share the love. Regardless of the tone of that speech, it demands self-improvement. Do more, longer, better, right this minute. And let me be clear, Paul, let alone the entire scripture, is not against us growing in love. And it's not against us, the effort it takes to grow in love. But look at how Paul motivates us, how he chooses to motivate us to change for the better. Verses six through eight are not a bad dog speech. They're not a lecture about reaching deep inside and fulfilling your potential. In fact, Paul points outside of himself, outside of his audience, outside of us, and he points to Jesus. Jesus, who in the book of Hebrews is described as the founder, the author, and perfecter, the finisher of our faith. And most scholars believe that verses six through eight are a piece of a well-known poem, maybe even an ancient hymn of Christianity, but really they are word for word, pound for pound, one of the best expressions of the gospel message, central to Christianity in what Paul calls in another letter, the power for salvation. So perhaps it's just best for me to plate them for you, to read them aloud again, and together we can just chew and start to digest the precious calories in this passage for us to burn up in love. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I'm really tempted to end there, maybe because of the World Cup, and pray, uh, but I'm not going to. Uh, like a good waiter, I just do want to point out a few of the finer features of what he just said on offer here. Look, Jesus is equal to God. He is God from the beginning, second person of the Trinity, son of the very God. And when he empties himself, he does not empty himself of his godness, his divinity, but he does, he does empty himself of his God power and privilege, his godly power and privilege. God empties himself of his riches. Jesus was born dirt poor. And his status, Jesus was a man who subjected himself to our human conditions, our pains, our hungers, our thirsts, our hot and cold relationships, all with a new sense of dependence, limited knowledge, limited strength, and limited personal presence. And I, it's so important for you to realize this, we live in a world that has always worshiped power. Always. And look at the way that Jesus uses his power. He just gives it up. The master of the universe pre-He-Man, became slave to all. Why? So that through his obedience to God the Father, he, to, unto death, by the way, obedience unto death, even on a cross, he could rescue many. That's why he did that. By believing the gospel message today, you are rescued from death. You are rescued from the evil within you 
You are rescued from the evil outside of you. And really, even the slavery that we all live in of our good intentions, he wants to rescue us from that too. The self-improvement projects that we fail and the self-improvement projects that we accomplish that sour us with pride. Kelly Capick puts it all in a beautiful way, very simply. Christ, the embodiment of humility, lifts others up so that they might see God. That's to say that Jesus is not just the best example of humility out there. Jesus' humility saves us. It saves us. Jesus is the Messiah, bends low, so low that he almost disappears under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. And I can't tell you how important it is for me to remember that this time of year. Jesus is the strong man, and I get to be part of the whole swaying mass on his shoulders. He's the strong man. And while that grace, that grace to be lifted up and carried, can feel foul sometimes to so many of us who are so capable and successful at doing. What's so am- I want us to also see, the, see and feel the sweeter parts of what that gospel message tells us this morning. And I'm going to quote uh, a man named R.J. Heyman, who has a podcast I enjoy. He's on a podcast I enjoy. He has a beautiful way of describing verses 6 through 8, what's being said there. He says this, The work of the gospel is true, no matter whether you've ever got self-actualized or not. Jesus is coming back. You are saved. Your hope is secure. We know the end of the story. There is nothing you can do about it, and it doesn't really matter how you feel about it. Now, in the moments when you actually believe that and internalize that, you may actually experience something like peace or integration or honesty, love or hope. But God's work in our lives does not depend on your experiencing any of those things. The work of God in our lives is untamable. But the end of the story is good. Did you hear that? It's so hard to believe, it's hard to hear. Your hope is secure. We know the end of the story, and the end of the story is good. How does RJ know that? How can he say that? And why should we believe him saying that? Because of verses 9 through 11. They tell us what the end of the story is and why it's good and secure. Verses 9 through 11 tell us the hope ahead for, bound, for bending low the final and ultimate motivation for us to bend low in love. And our final point this morning. Let me once again point, just begin by rereading these verses, uh, the second piece of an ancient Christian hymn. But again, one of the best expressions of the message of salvation, gospel, the living and active and energizing words of God, the power of God for salvation. Therefore, because of Jesus' incarnation as a man and humiliation as an obedient servant unto a most cruel and cursed death, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.
Once again, tempted to end right there, just playing with you in the audience right now. It's just cruel, I'm sorry. But we're not gonna end there because I just wanna point out big picture a few things about the whole. This is the end of our story. This is the end of the story, the story of you and me and everyone else who has ever lived and ever will live, of all heaven and all earth and everything under the earth. It will all end, and it will all end with Jesus' exaltation from bending low to straightening up. Him, Jesus, high and lifted up, and we, all of us, bent low, this time in worship. And so we often sing about that ending this time of year, how that triumphant ending has begun already. And here's a, a song that we sing it. Here's a hymn. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope the weary soul rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. O night divine, O night when Christ was born. You hear that? And so verses 9 through 11 also give us, we who worship Christ as king, now that's where you are. Our, this is our only true and lasting hope. You see, that first Christmas 2,000 years ago, God wanted to do something very strange. And if you kind of like take a step back and reread the Gospels, the very beginning of them, you'll see this. It's something beyond human imagination, let alone human self-effort. Look what he does. God resorted to angel choirs, a pregnant virgin, a star that is wandering across the Middle East, all to stir hope within us. God wants us to believe that he could do something, something about our weary souls and the world and sin and error pining. And so he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And he died on a cross for us. But we still live by faith and not by sight. We wait in this Advent season for God's presence to be so physically present that all our soul's weariness for life and aging, love and war, would be lifted like a burden from our shoulders. That's what we long for. And we walk expectantly, we hope and we wait for Jesus' righteousness, his rule to come down to earth as it is in heaven, and for him to declare and to make no more poverty and justice. Stage four cancer, tragic sudden deaths, shed blood and shed tears. Our hope is nothing less than Jesus coming again to this earth with power. As a good lion, the fairest judge, and a king of king and lord of lords, Jesus coming again in Cotswold, coming again to Charlotte, coming again to the ends of the earth. And then and there, every knee shall bow, and heaven and earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, the glory of God, the Father. In the meantime, we hope and we wait. And what do we do?
We live our everyday lives looking for opportunities to bend low and love. But also we look out for moments when we see the evidence of Jesus having bent low first before us. Keep our eyes and our ears open for moments of grace, moments when our breath catches and our heart flutters in our chest and we find our eyes suddenly filling with tears. This happened for me this past Tuesday night. I'd like to end with a story. Um, I was sitting in a hard wooden chair in an old auditorium at my twins middle school orchestra concert of all places. And my daughter Millie was in my lap she, so she could actually see the stage. And my wife Tear was on my right hand side and a friend of ours uh, who had taught one of my twins ukulele on the porch during COVID was on my left. <laughs> and uh, he had driven, this friend of ours had driven down from Lake Norman during rush hour, uh, and he had risked the awkwardness of being a 29-year-old adult male with a mustache at a middle school concert, which I feel like has got to give you courage points. Um, after a few soft jokes uh, about cell phones, Mrs. Weingartner lifted a small, thin stick and slowly, I, could, I couldn't feel my seat anymore, and I was swept away. I was swept up into something that hummed and definitely squawked in a symphony of beauty so divine and yet so very human. I felt tears coming to my eyes. And honestly, I'm not exactly sure why this concert was so moving to me, it was certainly something about the music that I heard with my ears, but I think it was actually more something that I saw with my eyes. There they were, over a hundred gangly, squirming middle schoolers, preteens, black, brown, and white, rich and poor, all zeroed in with adoration on an unassuming middle-aged woman. Mrs. Weingartner, waving figure eights with a thin white stick in the air. And I watched these children from so many different living rooms, attached to so many different stories, stories coursing over generations and across borders of countries. All of these preteens forgot their pride and they lowered themselves into something bigger than themselves, bigger than each of them and all of them put together. They played only their parts, no matter how small. They relied on each other, each to do his or her own part. And most of the time, they didn't look over their shoulders at the others, but they kept their eyes fixed, fixed on the conductor, who through her humility had given them some small measure of the technique and the strength and the hope that they needed in that moment to bend low. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you uh, to be able to open your word and to remember the good old story. Uh, the story that has, has, feels worn to some of us and brand new and, and uh, maybe even offensive to others. And I pray that you would meet us wherever our hearts are uh, with your old, old story and that you would move us by it yet again. And Lord, that um, we would be swept up by it. We'd lose our footing. We'd swoon. We'd lose our heads in your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.